Have you ever felt frustrated because you just couldn't find a lovely book to read? I can start to crave not just a good book, but a book that draws me in and evokes such a deep emotion that I can say, wow, that was a lovely book. Welcome friends. This is Emmy B on Lovely Books Podcast, where it's my job to highlight the lovely books that keep you reading and connect you to the world. If you're new to Lovely Books, this podcast is more than just a best books podcast. It's about the reader's experience and takeaway. No book reviews, no analysis of literary content, just thoughts and personal anecdotes brought to our minds by the characters and subject matter that we love. That's what brings the book to life for you. I hope we give you something to think about, something to laugh about, and something lovely to read. I'm so excited. Welcome, Katie Clegg, to Lovely Books Podcast. I'm excited because Katie inspired me to do my first ever buddy read, which is so fun. Because we so both, fun. It's fun. And we wanted to do this book because Katie loves Ruta Septis. Um, I love Ruta Septis, so it was absolutely perfect. And buddy reads were new to both of us, but we thought it would just be a fun way to discuss and get extra input. So... Before we talk more about this book, um, Katie, will you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Emily's little sister, and uh, I'm the baby. Um, I am a mother of three kids. I'm married and live in Eden, Utah. I teach preschool, and I'm a family photographer. So, yeah. And an interesting fact about the two of us is we have celiac disease. It's true. Gluten hates us. Gluten hates us both. We've had it for longer than anyone listening to this podcast. I can pretty much guarantee it. And so, listen, if you think you've had celiac disease longer than me, DM me. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear because I remember your first birthday cake that was gluten-free. It was mud. It was chocolate mud. Yes. It's come a long way. I'm not, what? It's come a long way. Oh, it's come so long. Like we were buying books from publishers because they didn't have any in Barnes and Noble. And we were having rice flour shipped to us because you couldn't buy it in the store. Um, I'm not going to tell you what year I got diagnosed with celiac disease because then you could guess how old I am. And that is none of your business. (laughs) It's true. I have not had it as long, but you now I'm going on a decade. Yeah, are you? Yeah. Oh, that's sad. It's okay. I don't remember what food tastes like mostly. Real food. It's like the best when your kids are like, or when you tell your kids like, oh, I made this. It's gluten-free. It's so good. You got to try it. And they're like, mom, it's not good. It's not. It's not good. Not good. <laughs> For the record, I do make a mean gluten-free cookie. Oh, she makes the best, the best. And she once made cinnamon rolls that she can't remember the recipe for that I thought I was going to die for. Oh, they were so good. Okay, so I'm going to give a brief synopsis of this book because it's, it's complicated. It covers um, the Spanish Civil War and the reign of um, General Francisco Franco, um, who was a dictator of Spain in the 1930s. Um, the story follows the Moreno family. There is an older sister, Julia. She's married, and she has a young infant child. 
um, there is a sister named Anna and a brother named Rafa. And living with the family is Rafa's best friend, Fugo. Fuga? Fuga? <laughs> it's a good thing I edit. <laughs> um, so Rafa's best friend, Fuga, in during the Civil War, I don't know if they were put in an orphanage. It wasn't really clear to me what happened to them, but they were separated from the family. And the two of them made their way back to Madrid in order to be with their family. So you have this family unit, um, and then you have a cousin also living in Madrid named Puri, um, or Purification. She works at an orphanage. Um, Anna works at a hotel. Julia is a seamstress. Um, and Rafa, what does he do? He's a butcher. Butcher. Yeah, Rafa works for the butcher. Fuga digs graves and is an aspiring bullfighter. Um, the sort of central location for the drama in this book is a hotel in Madrid that is um, that welcomes the American wealthy. And um, in the course of the story, a family comes to visit from Texas. They have a son named Daniel, um, who is an aspiring photographer, but he's the son of an oil tycoon. So he's not really sure which way his life is going to get to go. And he meets up with an old friend named Nick, whose father works for the U.S. Embassy. And um, and the stories of, of these, I guess, three groups of people really come together to, to give us a really, um, I don't know, in-depth look at what it would have been it what it would have been like to live in Madrid during Franco's regime how it would have affected you morally educationally in terms of employment there's just so much to look at but it's a really great look at the Spanish revolution and and what happened what came out of it all the things, all the things we have no idea about. Why don't we have any idea about them? It's because they're hidden in the fountains of silence, Kitty. They are hidden in the fountains <laughs> of silence. That's true. So I think we were all surprised that we didn't hear about this before. Like we didn't know a lot about Franco's regime until very recently, right? Yeah. I yeah. Think and and suddenly, all these authors are taking over and, and saying, and, you know, telling the truth of it. Right. Yeah. Right. But we're missing, I feel like that silence, the fountains of silence really ties into the idea that we're missing so much of it because there was so much censorship that there isn't a common narrative. In fact, right. most of the people who participated in the buddy read are, I actually think maybe all of them are, you know, college educated intelligent, capable professionals. And most of them had very little knowledge or clarity on right. that this happened. Like, I think we all knew that there was a Spanish revolution. Right. But knew, didn't know anything about it. No. Especially not about the No. Kids. Yeah. And we've heard the name Franco before and we know he was a dictator. Right. One of the things that surprised me is that Paul's family left Uruguay shortly before all of this happened. And it's not in any of his, or left Spain for Uruguay. It's like not in any of his family history stories. And I think that's kind of common, actually. 
I've asked my mom about it because I'm first generation American, right? They were born and raised in Portugal right next door. Mm-hmm. And she said, Oh, absolutely. He was, he was a terrible man, you know? And, and I said, how did I, how did you never tell me this? You know? And oh, she okay. said, um, well, Portugal had just gone through a dictatorship and, you know, they had a, the effects of this last so long yeah. that people just don't talk about it. You know, even later in life, it's just so ingrained in you to keep it inside. So she said it just was something that we never talked about. You know, we never talked about our dictator and we never talked about others. Um, but she was well aware of everything that had happened. So I was, I was surprised by that. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because, um, like I think I mentioned, I'm from Colombia, but my mom's side of the family is from Spain and they actually moved from Spain during that time period. So like my great grandparents moved when my grandpa was a little kid. So it was right around that time. Uh, but when I asked my mom about it and when she was told, she was like, no, we never talked about it. I, I have no idea the circumstances of, you know, when they move or why they moved or, you know, anything like that. So I think it's interesting that even the people that moved away, they still kept that silence. When everything is so censored and everything is so controlled and there's no common narrative historically in terms of record, that mm-hmm. years later, and mind you, we're not even, I mean, I guess we're 90 years later. 80 years later, um, it's hard to insert this into history because there isn't a common narrative. You know, like if you think about World War II, like even though in World War II there were so many places where things were being controlled by the communists, like all the other countries who were also participating in the war, like they were newspaper articles, they were writing things for the Spanish Revolution. It was happening in country and they had control of everything and they killed and burned and tortured and scared. So in terms of like historical fiction, this was so mind blowing that there's even a possibility that this could be real. Yeah. So we're going to talk about, I'm going to pull up everybody's comments Man, people gave some stellar, well-thought-out, great comments on this, didn't you think? Yeah. So we basically just posted questions on an Instagram group and let people comment so that, you know, you could get more interaction with the book. I guess there were five or six of us actively involved. Um, We have Nell from Texas, um, Kara from California. Tara and Rachel and me are all from Cottonwood Heights, Cottonwood area in Salt Lake City. Katie is um, up in Eden. I can't remember where Marina is. Sandra's in New Jersey. Kaja's in Europe, and so she couldn't join us for any of the like online stuff. But um, yeah, so I just set out to to ask these questions, and now we're just going to talk about them. So. The opening line of the book is they stand in line for blood um, and not knowing anything about Franco. I feel like that really set the tone for 
what the book was literally going to be about and kind of what it was symbolically going to be about. Um, but the first thing that it made me think of, and they do mention is blood sausage. <laughs> Which is just gross. It's so freaking gross. Um, so Paul's family eats blood sausage. Katie, do you remember when dad, when, when Ed brought dad blood sausage to like a family barbecue? Yeah. <laughs> no one can forget. And then dad so was gross. like, I didn't know what to do with this. And I was like, well, you can cook it or you can toss it. <laughs> I think he tossed. I don't know if Americans can think it's not gross. So, so crazy. Um, so it's, but it's like such a common Spanish dish in Uruguay. It's everywhere in Spain. You find it everywhere, but it does create like a, an, an interesting image. These were Tara's thoughts and Tara's, she lived for a couple of years in South America. She's been to Spain. She's been to Madrid. Anna thinks about the difference between cheering for the bullfighter and cheering for the bull. And in Madrid, in these bullfights, you really do have people kind of split. And the energy, um, the chaos, it distracts you from the fact that you're actually witnessing a killing. Um, and she says, in a lot of ways, Spain was the same at that time. There was an energy that was alluring to tourists, um, and they were distracted from the killing and all of the the things that were happening within that fascist regime um, that was happening around them. And then Tara says, I predict the book will have pivotal moments for each character in which they have to make a choice with definitive actions that place them on one side, the other, much like the illusion of choosing the bull or the torero. Um, it's not a fair fight in the ring. And it wasn't a fair fight during the white terror under Franco's regime. They killed Protestants, Spanish Republicans, intellectuals, Basques, and the people of Catalan, which is actually where my husband's family's from. And then she says, um, Morcillo indeed, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, bloody. It really was. Like, so crazy. Well, and so, I think you witness, you witness that throughout the entire book, though. Like, mm -hmm. if the people struggle with what side they belong on. Like, even from the ones who grew up very, very strict and loyal towards Franco, the ones who you can see that internal conflict in every single one of them as they start to realize that what they're witnessing is just morally wrong. Mm -hmm. And they know, can't do anything about it. They can't do anything about it, but also the guilt from the way that they were raised in even that they have even feeling the way that they feel mm -hmm. because they were raised so strict that they go to confession for feeling like, for having the feelings and thoughts that they have. And when they come to realization of how immoral and awful, what happened, what's happening is, and even questioning anything is a sin. You know what I mean? They, they grow up so strict that even questioning anything, they feel so much guilt about, but you can see that internal struggle within each of them. And some of them who weigh more on one side versus those who weigh on the other. But I also feel that some of the characters reacted like based on their, um, like their journey in life or where they're wearing life. So like um, if they had a child or if they had experienced the, the initial events when they were younger or when they were older, like their specific stage in life impacted how they reacted and how they tried to survive. That's, it's hard to understand. And I, it's hard to, you know, without a book like this, I feel like it would be easy to say like, well, why didn't the people just do that? Why didn't they just revolt? Why didn't they just stand up for themselves? 
you know what I mean? Without um, having sort of the personal interaction with the characters individually as their stories kind of develop and you see what happens to people who say too much, open their mouths, try to go to the authorities. I mean, the grossest part for me was when they talk about um, Anna and um, Anna and Rafa and Julia's mother. Do you remember what they did to torture her? Oh yeah, they fed her castor oil. And then dragged her through the street while she soiled herself? Yeah, so that everyone could see. Yeah, I mean, that's sick. Yeah. Well, the part of me that I felt the sickest about was the baby in the freezer because I thought to myself, how many times did they take that that baby out of the freezer and how many parents' arms did that baby go into thinking that that was their baby, especially after reading the letters that they found in the basement of the orphanage being like, I saw my baby and the baby that you showed me died was not my baby. And you just think about how many people held that baby that's dead thinking that was their baby. Yeah. It's, and it's so crazy. Um, you know, these little details that are hard to study, like in a big picture in terms of like, if I'm studying the history of Spain, like it would take me so long to uncover all of this history that we just read this month, but putting it in a historical fiction book that's well-researched, it makes the information so accessible and so concise that it's, I feel like it's such a gift to readers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because we really do get to be put into that time period and we get to evaluate the historical happenings from a totally different perspective than if we were reading it textually in a textbook. So I'm going to, I'm going to share a comment that Rachel shared, which again, is a, this is like one of the baby pieces of history that um, I don't think we would really zone in on. Um, So this was her first comment on like her first feelings on the book. She said, um, the opening sentence really set the tone for me. The first glimpse at the Moreno family is one of profound loss and violence. And I suspect their suffering will not end there. One thing I found particularly horrifying was the taxation on burial plots. The idea of digging up bodies and tossing them into pits really hit me hard. They weren't just working to provide a life for themselves, to provide food and shelter and whatever they needed for themselves, but they were paying a monthly payment on a burial plot. Not only did they take their parents, torture and kill their mother, then afterwards, they made them pay for the spot in which their mother died, let her body lay to rest. Yeah. So we were talking about, I looked up a bunch of information about the Valley of the Fallen, because I didn't know anything about it. Do you know anything about it? Just what I read in the book. So um, it's Spain's largest mass grave. It has the remains of 33,000 people. 18,000 of them were Protestants, Republicans, basically the intellectuals, all those people that they killed. So they would take all their war prisoners, um, everyone who died in the war, and they threw their bodies into mass graves. And then the only marked graves in this big national monument was that of Franco and the dictator that preceded him. So it says that Franco was exhumed in October of 2019. Oh my gosh, 2019? Yeah. 
October 24th of 2019 as a result of efforts to remove all public veneration of his dictatorship and following a long legal process. Oh my God. Those were true. I love the contrast between, and this isn't one of my questions I'll have to look up. I love the contrast between the hotel where you have like wealthy American tourists, like come to exotic Spain and have this like first class experience. And then when Daniel leaves to go visit Anna for the first time and sees her like in her home, in poverty, living in shambles, like the contrast, I feel like was a really important sort of reflection of this American idea of like, yes, we visit these glorious countries, look at this beautiful culture, and we become very ignorant of what's actually happening there. Oh, for sure. Especially when she started talking about how they knew they just needed to sell everything, any gift they were given by anyone. I know that was the worst. I was like so depressed. And they sit there and they think, oh my gosh, what you just paid for that is a year's worth of wages for me. And it was nothing, you know, for the people staying there and like how hard that would have to be to watch happen. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm going to read what Nell said about the poverty comparison. Okay. Um, So she said, so the question that I posed was, is the hotel a fantasy? Because there's, certain points in the book where we have, no, Julia is telling Anna, your life at the hotel is a fantasy. Like that's not real. You need to realize that what happens at the hotel, that's not real life. That's a fantasy. So I was just, you know, saying like, is it a fantasy? Um, And so Nell said, it's certain, it was certainly a fantasy with respect to the facade being projected at the hotel to all the visitors. One need merely peek beneath the surface to find the hopelessness and misery that make the fantasy possible. The problem was that so few were willing to sacrifice their life of privilege, but isn't that often the case? I would argue that recent events have shown many of us how we have benefited from choosing to be silent while reaping the benefits of a marginalized nation. So in that respect, I can see how easy it would have been to play in that privileged playground and ignore the desperation bubbling so close to the surface. I mean, there's so many beautiful moments in this book um, that even taken in their little tiny segments are just such great little nuggets of um, a reality check. They say, you know, whatever you believe, just be educated in it, you know, just, just be aware, like, and, and to learn from history. Like, I had no idea that this happened, like, zero idea that this happened. And I mean, what an, what a, like, tumultuous time for these people, I just can't even imagine. And then to have, like, people who went through, you know, one of the greatest education systems in the world, I I guess, I mean, I know we have a ton of a ton of gaps, but, but, you know, we have free education in our nation and, and I should know this and I have a degree and I had no clue. <laughs> so yeah, I think to be educated on, on those things is so important. Yeah, totally. So I absolutely loved this. I thought this was like so stellar. There were just so many different aspects to consider. There was the history, there was the individual characters and their individual stories and but I'll definitely read more of her books, like as they come up. 
for sure. She'd be one I'd keep an eye out for. Yeah. Um, Hey, so we have a giveaway. Oh, that's fun of the book. Yeah. Somebody's winning a book. And I'm announcing the winner. Right now. Right now. Do it. Okay, the winner is, drum roll please, from Drawing Out of a Hat, the winner is Jessica, whose Instagram handle is Mommy Reads. She lives in Pennsylvania and is the mom of three. No, Mommy Reads, I hope you're listening because in order to claim your prize, you have to DM me and say, I heard I'm the winner. Here's my address. So you have, Mommy Reads, you have 48 hours to DM me to claim your prize. Um, Please DM me to claim your prize. I really want to send you a free book. Congratulations and thanks for entering. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Oh, Katie, I seriously am glad you did this. This was fun. It was actually a really good book that I read in the last four days. Oh, it's so good. Um, By the way, you get to leave us with a book recommendation if you want to. So I say Silent Patient. I liked that one. That one led me. I was, I feel like that one was more, I couldn't put it down. Totally. And the psychology in it, though it wasn't particularly sound, was like mind blowing. Yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. So I really like Silent Patient. Yeah, The Silent Patient's a great recommendation for October. Alex Michaelides, The Silent Patient, great book. Thanks again for joining us and helping us wrap up our first ever buddy read, The Fountains of Silence by Ruta Septis. And please remember that if you liked what you heard today, Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and we will see you again next week when we bring you another lovely book.